It's January 30th, 2019. This is Acacia Thompson for Brooklyn Public Library's Greenpoint Oral History Project for Our Streets, Our Stories. I'm here at the Central Library with video artist and filmmaker, Hank Lindhart. Hi, Hank. Hi, Acacia. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good. Thanks for being here today. My pleasure. So tell me, how long did you live on, near the Williamsburg waterfront? Uh, from 1983 to 2001 uh, on uh, the corner, well, on Kent Avenue and the corner of North 13th Street. So, and the building is still there. Um, uh, it's surrounded by big buildings now, but yeah. I'm just thinking, I'm just imagining which one it is. Is it the red building? It's a little red, red building. building, yeah. yeah the corner. Mm -hmm. And it was a really funny, I don't know if I can, can I di do diversions here? There was a really funny episode uh, in uh, The Unbreakables, uh, Kimmy Schmidt, uh, where Carol Kane uh, chained herself to a bulldozer um, there. They just, they were, it was a thing about gentrification, not about Williamsburg, but it, of course it implicates Williamsburg. And she chained herself to a bulldozer in the lot opposite, which is becoming this huge building now. And uh, the, the, the red building was in the background of the shot. And so it's like, you know, I don't know, whatever. No, but I always notice that building because yeah. it's changing drastically right around it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. All right, so tell me, can you describe a little bit about what the area was like sure. when you lived there? Sure. Um, it was... Um, I think what I liked and what many of my friends liked is that it, it just was the, the waterfront was a wild area. It was unplanned and un, I mean it had been planned in a pr previous life but but once the industry had left uh, yeah, it was just anybody did whatever and um, I had two uh, dogs, one that I found on the waterfront, and she gave birth to seven puppies. And, and I kept wondering, we used to walk on the waterfront every day, uh, a couple times a day. And uh, I, I was friends with uh, a number of the people that lived there. There was a guy named Bobby who lived right on the edge of, uh, I think I figured this last night, between... Uh, North 11th, I think, was where he was. But he really was, like, the water was right there. Uh, and there was uh, another guy named Jesus who uh, lived in a little security shack uh, near uh, Julia Zanko's bar, uh, North uh, 7th and uh, Ken Avenue. And uh, there was a guy... Uh, gee, whose name will come back? Uh, Ralph, who uh, camped out in a in a big building, uh, and Ralph had a theory. Um, he always thought that he was going to get the waterfront. It, that he he thought that he he had a case that he kept you know saying that uh, he had filed. I, I I'll try to remember. Peter might remember better why Ralph thought that, but he, he, he thought that he had lodged a legal case that would allow the whole waterfront to be ceded to him. We all just thought he was nuts. I mean, it's just totally because it's just like he had no resources whatsoever, but 
but it was a, a grand theory, <laughs> and, and uh, so he was there. And, and then there were other buildings where there were many people uh, that lived in them. Uh, not all the time, they would come and go. And so uh, in, there were the old cobblestones for the streets, and uh, when I was first there, there was the uh, engine uh, for a train. Uh, yeah, I have pictures of that. Uh, and um, anyway, a lot of us were just, uh, you know, just enthralled with the magic of the place. It was, you know, in decay, but it was also, one th for one thing, it, when you step down to the waterfront or onto it, uh, you had this gigantic sky, which you don't have any place else in New York. Uh, there were no buildings bounding except way off in the, uh, you know, Manhattan on the other side. And so um, you got the feeling like, wow, I'm in a big open space. And uh, that was a really wonderful feeling. You know, I'd, I'd been in Manhattan for a couple years and things before um, moving out to Brooklyn. And yeah, so it was, it was really uh, nice. And, and there were people that fished and people that crabbed and uh, did all sorts of things and then there were and I became really friends um, my, the guy I mentioned Bobby and he had a friend named Lucius uh, they were scrappers and uh, there were a number of people did this uh, they would find whatever metal you could find uh, and bundle it and then take it to metal recycling places and get money for it and I remember keeping an eye on, uh, like what Bobby would say, what the price was. Like I think copper was going for ninety cents a pound or something. And um, so, but they would get telephone wire wherever they could scrap it. And, and I don't think it was always laying by the side. I think <laughs> sometimes they pulled live wires, and uh, they would, and then they'd have to burn off the insulation because the uh, uh, scrapyard didn't want didn't want that, and uh, of course it was a toxic uh, fire coming from burning the insulation, and the fire trucks would inevitably come, uh, you know, and come down and spray it, and just, you know, that'd be the end of the operation for the day until they got another uh, bunch of wire and, and set out to do it undetected for as long as they could, and so they were. It was just this ongoing kind of economy and there were other things that happened uh, there was a little building where people um, it was called a chop shop and so people would take cars and take take them apart and uh, sell them sell the parts and, 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 and they were stolen cars and um, so they you know they would drag them into these buildings and and uh, you know uh, and, and I remember videotaping a guy that was doing it and he was not friendly at all about that, and he was threatening me and the camera, and uh, <coughs> it was, I th but then I did find somebody in the neighborhood who could identify him, so he was a guy from the neighborhood who was doing this, and yeah, like it, uh, I would guess his age would have been 26 or 27 at the time, maybe a little more, and uh, 
So it, it was a lot of illegal things. I, I had a gun pulled on me once. Uh, you know, I was uh, just down and this guy was hanging out. and He was bothering this woman. Uh, it turned out I think they had a business arrangement or something. And um, I, I said, you know, stop bothering her. And uh, he came over and he pulled out this gun and, and I was... Uh, by my car and I got back in the car and he said okay I'm leaving I'm leaving you know and so uh, there were things a friend of mine found a bag of money and uh, so there was drug deals that went down it was, it was you know it was a tough place it wasn't the kind of place I, mean, I always felt secure because I had the dogs and, and people criminals are no matter what they're always afraid of dogs they have no idea what a dog will do and uh, so they gave me all sorts of privilege to walk any which way, and um, but I know it wasn't like a public park for you know. I know families wouldn't go there. I know uh, women wouldn't go down there by themselves and things like that. So I, I did see the as much as I wanted it to stay the way it was forever, and many of my friends did too. Uh, we did realize that it had to become a public amenity. But we really didn't want it. We we came. Our vision came up with well. There was the whole period of the recycling centers and the hoop centers. The uh, that's not what they're called. They're called transfer stations. Um, and that that wasn't there when I, f I first lived there. But that they came in uh, like in the next couple years. And so there was there's particularly a big one around. Fourth, and uh, but there were a couple others, and um, it was great for them because there was they they didn't have any office buildings or residential buildings around them, so they could do this repackaging of garbage into big semis, and it was a dirty, nasty business, and um, we fought really hard to limit them first to get them to stop dealing with putrescible wet garbage because uh, we just thought like that was uh, the kind of thing you don't want in a neighborhood. And the neighborhood was becoming more and more residential um, and um, it just, uh, <coughs> I, I, we, we envisioned at best I think that there would be um, promenade and uh, some parkland, uh, but we didn't want too much parkland because we didn't want the value to shoot up to where we couldn't afford it. Uh, so we envisioned that the neighborhood uh, uh, would just continue down to the waterfront, that there would be low-rise residential and commercial development and two, three-story buildings. That's what we thought would work best. Uh, you know, we, we never, we were just scared also of the tremendous high-rise residential development that was going to come about. But uh, So our idea that we kept putting forth was low-rise residential commercial, and, um, and people would always say, yeah, but the developers won't do it for that because they won't make enough money. So that, that was sort of where we always were. Uh, until about the time I left. And, and it was kind of 
anastasis, uh, and I think it really was, other people are gonna have to comment on this, but I think it was really the Bloomberg administration that allowed for the rezoning that it, that, and encouraged the development. That was before I left, uh, or, 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 or after I left the, the Bloomberg uh, era, whatever. Yeah, so. Well, can we talk a little bit about Renew? Okay, sure. What is Renew? Um, Renew. Renew um, was a, a, a media collective um, that was um, formed early on to um, fight uh, the transfer stations and high-rise development and things like that. We, so it, it was uh, basically um, four or five people uh, that came up with, um, you know, like, like well, Peter Gillespie was a, a, a sculpture student and uh, really involved in community politics and um, myself coming to it from my background in video and I had just done a lot of, um, I'd been, before I moved to New York, I had been the public access coordinator in Ithaca of uh, the cable station. So I had been working with a lot of community groups. And uh, so when I got to, um, moved out to Williamsburg, um, it just was natural that I'd start to get involved with, with this. And the other, the third person, well, in, 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 in there was Lynn Solomon, who was uh, Mayor Peter's uh, wife. Um, and uh, then there was John Rubin, who was uh, a filmmaker of some note. And so, so we had media skills right away. Um, again, it was uh, kind of pre-computer days, so it was kind of funny, you know. Like I remember uh, when we did our first um, attempts at Photoshop, and we were all like amazed that you could make a building look like it was part of, uh, you know, like a, you could put it, you could drop in a high-rise building on a, on a graphic, in a, yeah, in, in a graphic with two or three-story buildings and, and make it look like that's what it's going to look like. And, and we were like, yeah, we got we to gotta get these tools, you know, and, and we didn't know anything, you know, I don't want to speak for the other guys, but I, I didn't know anything about how you did that, but. Um, we were all learning computers at the time. So, um, but anyway, it was that. Uh, other, other people did come into it. Uh, Eva Schicker did come into it. To a certain extent, maybe Ethan Pettit did a little, but I think not. I think Eva was much more uh, involved. And, um, and we did see that also that print in making little newspapers and things like that could uh, also be a, a venue for or a, a strategy for attacking uh, what was going on. Um, and uh, the, the second uh, map after that toxic sighting map uh, was when the, the city proposed, uh, I suppose it was sanitation, that um, they would cite an incinerator on the, on the grounds of the uh, uh, 
Navy Yard uh, on the in, inside ground, uh, like on, on the uh, road side, on the Ken Avenue side of the Navy Yard. And we found out that there had been, that where they wanted to put it was, was where there had been, uh, soldiers were buried from the prison ships, from the British prison ships in, in Revolution. And uh, so there were descriptions of uh, you know, uh, that burial ground, which was just, they'd, they'd just throw them in the sand and dirt and just cover them over. It was not really, they weren't graves or anything. Uh, so we, one of, uh, one of our things was, was to say that, look, isn't this a desecration that this is going to go on on top of where these soldiers uh, were were unceremoniously buried. And um, and then also we played the card that uh, building an incinerator right next to the Orthodox community was really insensitive on the city's part also. That that, you know, you don't build incinerators next to Orthodox communities. And it, it just like, so we, we, we played every angle we could. But that was the second, that, that map, and it was meant to look like a kind of a revolutionary war map, and uh, I'll get you a copy of that. Um, so that was the second cartography project. And, and this was with the cartography club? This was with the offshoot from Renew, is the, uh, the Williamsburg Cartography Club. That involved Phil Dre and the artist that did the uh, cartoon toxic uh, map was a guy named Mike Rex, who was a student of mine from School of Visual Arts. And um, there were a number of other people that were involved um, in the cartography club. There was a guy named Gary Wimmer. And um, I'm not sure. Um, there, there may be others I'm just not remembering now. Uh, there may be Gary's uh, friend, Samantha Peel. Was, if she came to meetings, I don't know if she actually got involved in the work and things. But there were other, yeah, other people that were involved. I will really try to think more about it. And also uh, Phil Dre, if you ever want to look into the cartography club, Phil Dre would be a person to talk to. Well, with the videos that you made with Renew, mm -hmm. what were you hoping in making those, and who did you show them to? Um, well, we who, who did we take them to? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, we did. We really hoped we could just, um, particularly first, was outrage about the the garbage, uh, the protestable, the wet garbage uh, with uh, the transfer stations, and also. You know the, the what's going on with this radio radioactive storage facility here called Radiac, and um, you know why should we have that in this neighborhood? And it's in, in the video, it's right around the corner from a from a public school, um, on the same block, and uh, there were a number of uh, you know like first we wanted to get it to. Um, the local community board, and, and then we wanted to get their support and go to city council and get to whatever officials, sanitation, 
or whatever that could actually change the policy. And let's get this moved out of here. Let's find a neighborhood that doesn't have residential neighborhood. I remember or, uh, residential stock. I remember thinking at the time, why don't we cite this along, why isn't this cited along the Newtown Creek where the old Phelps Dodge plant was? Like it was a big abandoned area. Um, but um, anyway, so we, in, so, and then we did know the uh, local assemblyman, Joey Lentall, was uh, in office back then, way back then still, and um, he was really helpful, uh, you know, in, in bringing it up to state assembly committees and things like that. So, so we did get them played, uh, and then there was um, playing at uh, a screening at City Hall one time, and that was good. Uh, another screening was with um, the Justice Department, the Federal Justice, Justice Department, because there had been a murder uh, of a uh, of a um, transfer station operator, and uh, it all seemed to point to that the uh, perpetrator was uh, another transfer station operator. Uh, so it was being investigated, uh, and um, it was, you know, um, the Justice Department wanted to know what, what we knew. We actually had the footage of uh, one transfer station actually pushing garbage into the river, and uh, that, that was pretty damning. Could the Justice Department prosecute based on that kind of thing? So it was, it was very, uh, you know, uh, compelling stuff, and, and we felt like, um, you know, we were um, really fighting this big operation that was, the, the city had relied on private carters uh, who were, were, want to do things fairly fast and illegally. And so, like, we were fighting that kind of thing. Uh, there were always the uh, illusions that, oh, with the mob involved and to what, what, you know, part of the mob, or I don't know, whatever, you know. So we never really got into that very much. But I think the Justice Department was interested in that uh, also. I had the fantasy that they were. <laughs> um, yeah, so Renew was, uh, it, it, it early on we would meet like every week and talk about what could we do. Uh, and, uh, and then we got involved in the videotaping of the uh, transfer station. So that was then really going on stakeout and waiting and, and waiting in our cars. and. Uh, following trucks and things like that. And uh, that, was, that was, you know, uh, and, and, and then we didn't, weren't always, um, we weren't always sure what, what was a violation or not. So the, in the videos, there's a lot of speculation. I wonder if they're allowed to do that. I wonder, you know, you know, and should there be, should these big trucks be competing uh, in the same road space with gasoline trucks, which are trying to get somewhere in a hurry too. This all just seems like craziness, you know. 
And meanwhile, Williamsburg was becoming this really hip, um, dense residential neighborhood. And, um, and here's this wildness that's going on on the waterfront and, uh, and, and kind of wrapped around the, to the backside, to the east, to east Williamsburg also. Yeah. Well, switching gears, okay. you made a, a film called Blissful Stories, uh -huh. Blissful Queens, which is on the Newtown Creek, and uh -huh. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about Newtown Creek or things that you observed while you were making that film. Oh, yeah, I have lots of thoughts about it. Well, first I was um, just curious what um, this neighborhood was, because it was a, it's a tiny little neighborhood that you drive through um, either to get to the Long Island Expressway uh, or go deeper into Queens, uh, come come out of Greenpoint on Greenpoint Avenue, and there's this little tiny neighborhood, and it kind of fills out to be a triangle with about 80 houses in it, and um, just in exploring the cemetery in a hot August day, um, just I became kind of intrigued. I went into that little triangle, triangular neighborhood. It was um, um, on the wall of the, this delicatessen was an old photograph that said Blissville uh, Deli and, uh, or, or Blissville Market. And um, I said to the owner, I said, where is this? You know, and why do you have this picture up? He said, that's this market, and uh, that's the former name. So I'd never heard the name Blissville before that, and, uh, and, and I'd been in, in Williamsburg, you know, Greenpoint for a good few years, and uh, I guess six years before. So, so I said, oh, and I started going around. At first, with a little help with Peter Gillespie in the cemetery, uh, but then with a... a friend named Arnold Dreiblatt, we walked around the streets and we asked people, why do they call it Blissville, you know, because it's, it's a descriptive term and, you know, why, and so some people said, yeah, it's a Blissville place, or Blissful place, it, and, uh, and, and um, nevertheless, I mean, in, in, in very, and then some people would say, I've never heard that word, uh, who, who lived there, and, uh, so there was not an idea why it was named that. Uh, and uh, so that hooked me. And also the size, that it was just about 80 houses, that made it compact. It wa I wasn't living in it. I was living over in Williamsburg, uh, right on the line of Greenpoint, Williamsburg. So it meant I had to go over there. But when, when I um, would walk around and things like that, it was discreet. I was done when I left there, and uh, that's there's something to be said about that. You know, you, you you know you could leave, you could reflect on what happened and what you were doing and what you should do, and uh, and and I could make repeated visits because it was just a neighborhood away, and, and and that's what happened. I just started going back and back, and found out that it was named for this banker uh, named Naziah Bliss. From Greenpoint, uh, who had bought the land 
laid out the streets. He thought about building a workers' community, uh, middle-class community, out into Queens. Um, and he had ideas that it would be uh, alcohol-free and uh, the, the, you know, like a really healthy neighbor, workers' neighborhood. <laughs> um, and uh, he had made his money in establishing a ferry service from uh, Greenpoint to Manhattan and uh, had messed around with uh, Fulton a little bit. There were some connections uh, uh, with Fulton and the steam engines and all. Um, at any rate, um, that, that just fascinated me, the name, where it came from. Came from. And, and uh, then th there are some attributes of the town. Uh, it has the world's largest fortune cookie factory, bar none. It is the largest one in the world. And they ship, you know, fortune cookies to China. And that just, that really hooked me as well. Like, uh, and also, um, at the time, they were, they were just starting the shipping operation to China. So they were, they were talking about writing uh, Chinese proverbs uh, for the fortunes rather than like the ones that we get uh, here. And, and, uh, and I was really intrigued by that as well. They were very friendly, let me in, videotaped the whole thing and everything. And then this other little factory uh, was the uh, uh, factory that has the exclusive rights to um, Cobar. And they have the exclusive rights to the making replicas of the Statue of Liberty. So that is, you know, it's an art factory basically, but then they do crank out these Statue of Liberties and uh, all sizes. And uh, the guy uh, that started it was, uh, he had escaped Romania and uh, he, he had become really involved when in, I think in 19, well, I, I think it must have been 1976, or the um, uh, 200th anniversary of uh, American independence, whatever, that um, with the Statue of Liberty, and, and it, was, it had been closed for a while, and there was a guy named Lee Iacocca from Chrysler Company who came and was helping it economically. I can't remember the story very well, but Somehow, uh, this guy, uh, the owner of the factory, got involved with Lee Iacocca and uh, the whole thing. And so he had climbed up the scaffolding of the statue. He uh, had a sculptor's eye for uh, dimensions and for um, the whole thing. And that's how he kind of became the exclusive replicator. Uh, it was really a, a kind of a sculptural um, uh, mission and um, so that, that was that's another compelling story and he had hired many different uh, nationalities that worked in his uh, in the factory and that, that interested me as well and here, here's Blissville it, yeah, you, when you think Blissville well, people would say oh it's a blissful town I, I just love it it's like, uh, you know, somebody calling some other town like Pleasant Valley 
where you have an image in your head, North Pleasant Valley. And here's Blissville. What's Blissville? And you think, well, maybe it's a little town in New England that has white picket fences and uh, there's a church and all that stuff. And it's, the town has some aspects of that, yes, but it has, it, it is another kind of Blissville. It has a, uh, uh, a real dynamic uh, sort of ethnic mix and it has a, and it is a real mix with industry and residential, which makes it really kind of interesting to me because it, it's functioning, it functions. Uh, and all these workers come in from other parts of Queens, and Queens, of course, is just unbelievable in, in terms of being home to the world. And, um, you know, and they all seem to, you know, they get along, you know, and, 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 um, that interested me. The, ba the basic ethnic mix of Blissville was Irish, uh, German, and Polish, uh, but now there are people there, uh, I mean, many living there that are from South America, from uh, India, from um, Pakistan, from um, uh, people from Africa and stuff. So the, the it, it is really an incredible mixing of people. Um, I love that. There was another factory. It's not so big now. Uh, it's not the same as it was. But it was on the banks of the Newtown Creek. And it was the probably the largest car crushing facility in the eastern Still United is. States. Some parts of it are, but it's not, not what it was. It was, it was just unbelievable. And um, I toured it uh, with the with the manager, and uh, he let me shoot everything. And he was he was not worried that I was gonna. I don't know. I just said I'm making a history of this area, and so that was fine with him. He wasn't worried that I was going to um, damn him, uh, you know, ecologically and things like that. I wasn't gonna, you know, and. And it was an amazing operation to watch these cars being shredded and uh, also just to watch how they move the cars around with these giant cranes. And so it was um, uh, interesting. There were certainly, you know, you think uh, ecologically <laughs> it's pretty bad use of, of a waterway or uh, and, and there, there are other places up the Newtown Creek. We did take a, uh, actually it was sort of the core renew team. Uh, and, and yes, it, it, we weren't thinking of Blissville at the time, but Peter Gillespie and John Rubin and myself uh, went on John's boat. John had a thing called the floating cinema and he used to drive up to uh, shorelines and uh, have this movie screen and speakers and present to people, and he did it all over. He had grants uh, all over the state, and I believe many places in the country, all, and, and internationally as well. Uh, anyway, this was a, a version of the floating cinema, and uh, we used the boat and went up the Newtown Creek, and it was just eye-opening because there was just this putrid black oily bottom to you could see along the shore, uh, uh, and 
in my video, there's a, an old car. It looks like maybe an old Volkswagen or something. Very small little car, but upside down in the, in the. That that also just to back up for a second. I'm sorry to confuse it, but there were it, when I mentioned the chop shop in Williamsburg, there were many cars that were abandoned and all over the place on the Williamsburg waterfront. And there were some that were put into the river, like just driven off, you know, like just to get rid of and stuff. Anyway, okay. So back to Blissville and this, yes, and this horrible scum on top of the surface of the Newtown Creek. Uh, it was, it's, it's, it, it's really, uh, I, I mean, I really, think it's remarkable the work that's going on with the Newtown Creek Alliance and uh, the, the serious uh, endeavor they've gotten to and um, I applaud them totally I mean it's amazing um, and they, they've taken on the really serious issues that we could only sort of just we were just finding out and just documenting a little bit at the time uh, uh, anyway um, and, and then Blissville leads on, uh, the video leads on to uh, that there had been a community about a mile away in um, near Mount Zion Cemetery, a Jewish cemetery over there, that in the 1930s had been a, a Roma, Romani colony, uh, or not, Romani village is what I would say, it was, and, uh, and Romani gypsies. Um, it was the largest collection of gypsies in the country in the 1930s. Uh, they built buildings, which was unusual, and uh, shacks, and uh, there were probably over 2,000 inhabitants, and it was really, um, you know, functioning. Um, and I always think, like, wow, yeah, okay. Um, they actually had a functioning community right in the teeth of the depression, you know, like, in the end, so I, I think that was just like amazing. Um, and they, um, I, so I found out about it with my friend Arnold. We found out that there had been a church nearby, uh, since been destroyed, called St. Saviors, and two women came out of a house, and, and they said, why, why are you taking pictures of that church? And I said, oh, I'm just interested in it. Uh, it's pretty. And they said, that's where the gypsies got married. And so we said, what do you mean? And they said, that's where all the gypsies would come to get married. And they'd have big weddings outside. So, and then we said, gypsies? And, you know, where were they from? And the women said, well, there had been this big kind of village down, down the hill near Maurice Avenue. So, uh, that was, um, you know, like a, 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 a hook, <laughs> like we got to find out about that. And, and I went back, immediately went back that night uh, and saw my friend Walter, uh, guy, this incredible character who lived in Williamsburg and he would go over to Teddy's bar at night and have a beer or two. And I said, Walter, I heard there was a gypsy community uh, over there in Queens. He said, oh yeah, that's where I used to go and play craps, throw craps back in the 20s. And, and so he knew all about it. A couple nights later, uh, maybe, I don't, 
he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, see that woman over there? I said, yeah. And he said, she's a jerk. And I was like, oh my God, Walter. Um, I don't, you know, I was, I was really not sure what to say to her because I wasn't sure about if I should use the word gypsy because some, it, you know, right away I'd found out that it can be a pejorative term and they don't, the gypsies, don't, the Romani don't particularly like to be, they want to call themselves Romani. So I didn't know what to say to her. So I said, well, I'm doing a project about uh, people who are of Romanian descent in uh, Queens and stuff. <laughs> and she kind of, uh, she kind of, uh, grabbed me, bear hugged me. She said, I'm a Romanian gypsy. And she was, uh, it was great.